Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's October the 18th, 2022. What a difference a year makes. Not much more than a year ago, I interviewed my current guest, Keith Boykin, uh, we were talking about the end of an era of white majority in America. Keith had a new book out at the time called Race Against Time, The Politics of a Darkening America. And it was a description of uh, this, what, what he called a cold civil war that engulfed the nation. Very important and interesting book. Many of you will be familiar with Keith. He's a very uh, prominent, ubiquitous figure on media, particularly on CNN. I was just at the gym, actually, last week, and I saw him on CNN. Uh, and he's been busy in this year. He's written all sorts of stuff, including critiques of Biden and voting rights. So he's been doing his regular business, but something's changed in Keith's life. He has a new book out. It's called Quitting, Why I Left My Job to Live a Life of Freedom. So Keith has quit, and he's even gone to live in the city of quitters, Los Angeles, and he's joining us now. Keith, you've quit. What's gone wrong, or what's gone right? I, I didn't. I didn't realize I was in the city of quitters. I love that. <laughs> I, I I think things have changed, but um, you know, in terms of the political dynamics of the world, a lot has not changed. And actually, I am, even though I've quit. Ironically enough, I am currently working on another book, which I have to complete by December. So I feel like this has been a very busy year for someone who's who's uh, quit his job. Uh, but I'm self-employed, and um, I actually quit a long time ago, uh, 30 years ago. But uh, I just decided to write about it this year uh, because it's been an experience that people have asked me about for a long time. And it became more of an issue in the past couple of years because of COVID, because of the pandemic, because of the shutdowns, and people were starting to leave their jobs. We went through what was called the Great Resignation. Right. 47, uh, 47 million people apparently quit their jobs last year, which is a large amount of people by any means. A huge number of people left their, their jobs for a lot of different reasons now. Some people left because they wanted to work for themselves. Some people had other jobs lined up. Uh, some people <clears throat> uh, were negotiating for better salaries at different places. Uh, some people wanted to switch gears and switch industries. So not everyone was quitting for the same reason. They weren't, you know, all suddenly decided they weren't going to ever work again. And quitting is not something I think that involves necessarily giving up your job. Uh, it does mean, I think, giving up the whole mentality that your job defines you. Uh, opening up yourself to the possibility that you might find another job or a different type of employment or a type of work that doesn't involve working for someone else uh, or creating something new. Uh, it's about being open to, to, to finding things in life that work for you and not just in, in employment, but also in relationships and, and friendships. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I like about the book, Keith, is you never do things by halves. This is a serious... <laughs> Uh, ideological statement in favor of quitting, not just your job, but relationships, places where you live. 
Uh, most people are a little ambivalent about the idea of quitting. I looked it up. It's about leaving a place usually permanently. But you're saying it's a good thing to quit. And I, and I, I think it's a, it's a rather intriguing idea that you're you are unashamedly in favor of quitting from time to time. Everything and everyone. And I have done that, and I'm not necessarily preaching that this is the method for everyone else to do, because I think each person is different. But for me, I've lived in 12 different cities. I've quit one city after another. I've had several <clears throat> relationships in my life, <clears throat> several different careers in my life, um, and several jobs within those different careers. Um, and so just uh, January of this year, I made a decision. I left my job at CNN, actually my contract had ended after five years. Um, and I decided it was time for me to move on. And I moved to New moved from New York to LA. I've been in New York for 20 years. I wanted to, to come and explore LA and I'm working on some TV and film projects out here. And it seemed like a good place to be. And I hate the winter in New York. <laughs> yeah, we all hate that, Keith. When you talk about this quitting and the different jobs and places to live and relationships, has there always been one Keith Boykin or every time you quit, is there a new Keith Boykin? I think the core is the same, but quitting allows you to sort of reinvent your public identity. Um, I, I think, you know, it, it's about like getting to know yourself. Uh, there are a few passages that I remember uh, coming across in high school that impacted me. One of those was the unexamined life is not worth living from Socrates, uh, which really influenced me. Um, another, when I was in college, actually, was two, from Robert Frost. Two roads diverge in the yellow wood, and I took the one less troubled by. Um, and so I, I guess, you know, I've, I've always sort of been that iconoclast, the person who's willing to challenge, cherish beliefs, sort of go a different path. Um, I've always been sort of an outsider wherever I've been. Uh, I grew up as a black kid in, the, in mostly white communities, went to mostly white high schools and colleges and law, law school. You worked in the Clinton, yeah, and you were in the Clinton. You've had some pretty high-profile gigs: CNN, the Clinton administration. You were at Harvard Law School, so you've done some some interesting things. Keith, um, you quote <laughs> actually on your website Ralph Lauren, the famous philosopher, who said the fame that the bravest choices you can make are to be true to who you are and remain to true to whom you love. How do you know though who you are? You clearly do. You have a strong sense of self in spite of all this quitting and moving around a lot of people don't have that how did you have such a strong sense of self well i think it's a it's a process of learning and constantly examining who you are it goes back to the socrates quote the unexamined life is not worth living and i i feel like i've spent my entire life trying to figure out who i am and part of that is being willing to try something new uh, you know i've always been opposed to those 20 and 30 year plans that are too rigidly defined that don't allow us to sort of move out of that and try something different. Uh, and so it, it reminds me of what uh, Muhammad Ali once said, the man who sees himself at 50, the way he saw himself as tw at 20 has wasted 30 years of his life. I don't think that I am the same person I was when I was in my twenties or thirties. Now I'm 57 and I'm happy about that. I enjoyed my twenties and thirties. I'm enjoying my fifties as well. But each new day provides an opportunity for me to sort of get a better understanding of myself by exposing myself to different things. If, you, if I spent my entire life in St. Louis, Missouri, which is where I was born and where I was from, I don't think I would be the person I am today. Part of who I am is based on the environments in which I've been fortunate enough to be exposed. Keith, you're a, 
a political guy, in spite of all the quitting, you, I'm sure you still keep up yeah. uh, uh, passionately with politics. We've had some shows about the new political division between what one analyst calls the somewheres and the everywheres. This division in the world now between people who stay put in wherever they come from and people who move. Do you think there's some truth to that? Do you think your politics has evolved from all this movement? I'm assuming that your politics have remained relatively stable. I mean, you've always been a, a progressive and all this moving hasn't made you more or less progressive, has it? No, it hasn't. But I can definitely understand that there are there are divides in our country. Uh, there's a, a city versus rural versus urban divide, which I think is a reflection of, of that, too. There's also a divide among the people who are sort of upwardly mobile and those who haven't. You know, I, I have family members, speaking of St. Louis, who've lived in St. Louis. I have some family members who lived in the same house their entire lives and are grown adults. Can so, you have a good life like that? Can you evolve as a person and 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 live for your whole life in in the same house on the same street in the same city, in the same job? Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, I think you can. I, it's just not the experience that I wanted, you know. <laughs> and I, I think part of it is, and I've had a lot of privilege in my life, and not everybody gets that privilege. And I don't mean to to use that to suggest that everybody who doesn't do the same things that I'm doing is wasting their life or anything like that. But rather, rather to suggest that we can sort of build a new social contract. I talk about this in the book, the idea that you shouldn't have to be privileged to be able to support your family. You shouldn't be, have to be privileged to be able to keep your lights on in your apartment or in your house. You shouldn't have to be privileged to be able to, to have clean, safe drinking water or or uh, to have good schools in your neighborhood or, or a safe community you can walk through at night. Those things shouldn't require privilege. And so part of what I'm arguing in, in the book is that we need to get back to a notion of an, old, of an older notion of a social contract where everybody had some sort of basic minimum in order to survive. Um, and not just the privileged few get to be able to want, be the ones who enjoy their lives. Do you think we need to look back even further? We've done a number of shows on what a, a post-job society would look like. We did one with the anthropologist James Sussman. That was an interesting uh, uh, conversation. He, he, he talks and he spent a lot of time in Africa. He's originally from South Africa. He wrote a piece for the New York Times uh, back in 2017 suggesting that the Bushmen uh, had the whole work-life thing figured out in the sense that they just simply didn't work too hard. Do we need to all become anthropologists, Keith? Well, I think... Amateur are... anthropologists, at least. At least be inspired by uh, pre-modern peoples of one kind or another. In other words, look back to Africa rather than Europe. Well, honestly, I think there's an evolution going on in our society writ large, not just in the United States. Um, and I think it's happening faster than we are recognizing. Um, and it's not necessarily moving forward or backward, it's just a question of change. And you know, they say the only thing that's constant is change. The, the truth is um, technology is making work um, almost unnecessary in the future. 
to the point where automation, computers, machines, robots mm. will be able to do a lot of the work that humans currently right. I mean, do. that's Sussman's point, I think, in his argument. And, and he's not alone in making that argument on a, on a post-jobs uh, society where machines will do most of the heavy lifting. Yeah, you know, it's ironic because I remember last summer uh, I came across an article in the New York Times about artificial intelligence, and there was a link in the article to a, an interview, a YouTube interview with a robot, an AI robot, and there was a human interviewing the robot. Um, and the questions were fascinating because uh, there were questions about life and philosophy and even politics. One of the questions that the human asked the robot was, do you believe in a universal basic income? And the robot answered yes, because she said, and it was a robot in the form of a woman, uh, she said that at some point, humans will not have work to do, and there will, be, there will need to be some way to provide some sort of financial support and sustenance for them. Just a shocking thought, you know, for those of us who are just kind of going about our business every day. I mean, this is, this, is, this is political stuff. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Trisha Hershey. I uh, did a, an interview with her this week. She has a, a thesis that rest is resistance. Uh, yes. Manifesto. yes. She's the founder of the, the NAP, NAP ministry. NAP ministry, yes. I, I saw that piece in the New York Times as yeah. well. Yeah, uh, and, and she's got a really good argument. I mean, do you buy that argument that napping and resting is a form of resistance? Yes, I do. In fact, the first time I, I came across that concept was from... Um, Hari Ziad, a writer named Hari Ziad, who um, I can't remember the name of his book, but I read it a couple of years ago. Um, but he talks about how even the simple act of uh, the, the sort of the, the stereotypical older woman taking her time walking across the street in the crosswalk and delaying traffic can be an act of resistance. Something as simple as that. Uh, in a world, in a capitalist world that's constantly telling us that we have to go, 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 produce, 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 hustle, hustle, hustle. Just slowing it down, putting a cog in the machinery is an act of resistance. Uh, it's using your body, in this case, the, the, the female body or a black body or any body, to stop the, the, the dehumanization process that capitalism is putting upon us. So there's all sorts of ways to resist. Uh, one way to resist is simply just... To, to live our lives freely and openly and not necessarily um, to, to follow into the structures that society has put up for us. I'm not sure if you're, you're talking to me from where you live in LA, but it looks pretty nice. Some people might be watching this, Keith, and thinking, well, it's all very well for Keith Boykin. He's a successful media personality. He can afford to quit, but most of us can't. We need to earn money to feed ourselves, pay our rent, feed our children. How would you respond to that? That's exactly right. That's exactly my point. I, I, I don't feel like you should have to, to be Keith Boykin or to be to have an Ivy League degree or a Harvard Law degree or to work in the White House or, or anything else just to be able to take care of yourself or to be able to make decisions about your own agency and autonomy. So I, that's why I didn't want this book to be just about my experience, although it's largely a memoir. 
but to use it also as a springboard for a larger conversation about that social contract and how it's been broken. I argue that we started breaking that contract in the Reagan era back in the late 70s, early 80s. We started slashing government resources to communities in need and people in need and redirecting, redirecting that resources with a huge transfer of wealth from uh, the bottom up. And that's created some of the, the, the inequities that we have today, the, 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 the problem with uh, income inequality, the, prob the problem with the, with the, the, the lack of, uh, of uh, health care for Americans, the problem with the lack of, of, the, of the ability to take care of yourself in, in retirement, uh, the problem of access to education, the fact that people are, uh, we've had skyrocketing college costs in this country. And all these things are growing out of control within my lifetime. And I don't feel that people um, always know that they have the authority or the agency or the, uh, the, the ability to be able to make a change because they feel like they're trapped in these jobs. Even people I've met who are very successful have often felt like they're trapped in what I call golden handcuffs, where they can't get out of those jobs as well. And I'm trying to encourage people to remember that they do have power, they do have agency. And if you don't feel like you have it within your relationship with your 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 employer, one way you do have power for sure is with when your relationship to your government by helping to advocate to change rules and create new policies that help and help to empower everyone. How much of this does it have to do, Keith, with love? Uh, I had another show a couple of years ago with uh, another journalist, Sarah Jaffe. She has an intriguing new book, Work Won't Love You Back. Um, should we be building our lives around love? Is quitting helpful for our love relations, whether they're with ourselves, our partners, our creativity? Is love something that's been destroyed by neoliberalism? Unfortunately, I haven't read that book, but I love the title of it. I think you'd enjoy it, actually. I think she's very much on the same page as you, Jaffe. She writes for a number of uh, publications. I'm sure you've come across her somewhere or yeah, I, I'm definitely intrigued by that book because I, I do share that concept, the, the thought. Um, it seems to me, first of all, love is everything. You know, I've always said that the, the two choices in life between fear and love. And um, it's not just in, in the sort of the amorous sense, but in the sense of every policy choice we make in life. It's about whether we're going to act out of fear or whether we're going to act out of love. But the, the second part of it, and I talk about, I do talk about this in the book, is this whole notion of how we have this sort of uh, 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 unfair relationships with our employers. Uh, it's not a reciprocal one in any way. Uh, the employers can expect anything of us and we have to work at all times and be on call at all times, but we can really basically demand nothing in return. Um, and so that's an imbalanced, unfair, one-sided relationship. So what I say is that I remind people that uh, most employers do not exist to create jobs. They exist to create profit. So people have been lulled into this false sense of security, thinking that somehow if they have a good job, that that job will provide them a sense of stability in the future. But we've already talked about the changes that are taking place with automation, technology, and, and, and AI that are making that uh, a bargain that employers can't necessarily guarantee. Not to mention the changes we've already seen in the past half century with internationalization and globalization so that a lot of the jobs that used to be in this country have been shipped overseas. 
employers and, and, and businesses are constantly, constantly looking for cheaper labor, cheaper capital costs in order to be able to uh, produce their products and create the, the most profit. Keith, uh, we talked about the 47 million people quitting. Uh, that's during COVID. Do you think this is a blip or has COVID profoundly changed the nature of things? Good question. I think it's both. I mean, I think it, it, what happened in COVID provided an awareness of the, of the larger structure, larger social forces that are taking place. And so I don't think that um, we're going to continue to see the same number of people leaving their jobs every year at that rate. But it does seem likely that we're going to see an increase in people who are leaving their jobs just in general as this whole sort of transformation of our technology starts to take place, the transformation of the workplace. People are starting to realize they don't have to be in a job uh, you know, in an office, first of all, in order to work, or even in a, in a particular job in order to be able to support themselves. And employers and employees are renegotiating their relationships with one another. I think that's a healthy balance uh, that we have that conversation. How much is this bound up, Keith? I mean, you have two lives, two worlds, this world of quitting and still your interest in politics. How much is the, 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 the quitting that's going on bound up with Black Lives Matter and the politicization on the street. Do you think that, um, that they're coincidentally connected or are they actually wrapped up together? Well, I hadn't actually thought about it, to be honest, in terms of its direct relationship to Black Lives Matter, but I do think there is a connection to the larger political forces that are taking place uh, because those forces have been taking place, I think, since, like I said before, the 1970s, 1980s. And the resistance that people are engaging in today by quitting is a reaction to that. It's a, it's a pendulum swing from one direction to the other. We've had the increase in income inequality and the, the, the slashing of the corporate tax rates and, and the uh, slashing of the tax rates for the highest income earners and the reduction of services for the people who are most in need in this country all over the course of the past half half century. Uh, and now what people are starting to realize is there's effect, there are effects to that. Uh, we've, the, the, the diminution of the state in terms of its ability to help the people who are most vulnerable in society has created a, a system or a structure of society where um, we don't have the basic guarantees that we used to have uh, for in our parents' generation or grandparents' generation. You know, back after World War II, the whole post-war generation, there was an assumption that if you worked hard and played by the rules, you could get by, you could buy a house, you could go to college or send your kids to college. Um, you could basically earn a living and support yourself and be able to retire. Uh, and the government would help you all the way. And since the, the 19, late 1960s, when the civil rights movement came in and African-Americans and other people of color started to be the recipients of, of the government largesse, there's been a backlash against that. And so uh, we've seen over the course of the past 50 years or so, from the 1980s on, 40 years, that um, that's no longer something that a lot of people in society can support. So the question is, how do we get back to that notion of, of, a, of a social contract where everybody is in some way um, not necessarily protected by government, but the government makes sure that nobody, there is a safety net, so no, the government makes sure that nobody is falling through the cracks. 
Keith, there's been a lot of stuff about quiet quitting, but uh, given that you connect quitting and politics and Black Lives Matter, are you in favor of noisy quitting? Is the noise of quitting in some ways like the noise of the street, the noise of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations? I'm in favor of people doing whatever works for them to, uh, to, to satisfy their needs. You know, quiet quitting has gotten a lot of pushback from I mean, it's a kind of a stupid term, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, noisy quitting, quiet quitting. Quitting is quitting. You know, I mean, you're a noisy quitter, and, and your, your manifesto is a, is a noisy thing. That's what manifestos are. It's hard to be quiet when you're writing a book about it, <laughs> you know. But um, but I but I do think that um, you know, quiet quitting is really just about setting boundaries within your workplace. You're not going to leave your job, but you're deciding I'm not going to do more than I absolutely have to do. I'm not going to work on weekends when I don't have to. I'm not going to give up my vacations. There are some expectations that have been, I think, destroyed in our society in terms of the, the, the separation between work and private life. And um, people are starting to regain control over that. Uh, and I think that's an important development in, uh, in our work-life balance. Keith, have you quit mainstream publishing too? Your book, The Politics of a Darkening America, Race Against Time, was a mainstream publishing uh, thing and, and you've written a number of other books all by mainstream publishers this book is a Scribner book it's once it's self-published but it's a much more innovative model why did you choose to publish quitting on the Scribner platform well you know that's a great question you're the first one to ask me that and um it, it was something I was a little reluctant to do at first because I didn't know anything about it but Part of the whole quitting model is really just finding ways to be open to what works for you, uh, open to new ideas and new technology, new platforms. I like the idea of Scribd. I think of it as sort of a uh, Netflix for books. It's an opportunity. It's a place where you can go and you don't actually have to buy the book. There is no physical book. It's entirely an ebook and uh, right. digital. It's a subscription model. It's, it's like, as you say, Netflix. So did they pay you or do you just get a, a, a piece of every time anyone uh, uh, anytime anyone um, reads the book rents the book they actually pay you for, for writing the book it's very similar from the author's point of view it's very similar to the traditional publisher route um, and um, it's actually much easier in some respects because a the book is shorter and which is good better for me the author and, and also for the uh, for the reader uh, B, uh, it's quicker to produce. So I started writing this book earlier in the spring, I think, and it's already out. Never happens that quickly in traditional publishing. Um, and, and, and then um, C, it, it creates a new, new mechanism for people to have access to my work and the works of other people. So I think it's an innovative new idea, but I haven't quit traditional publishing altogether. In fact, one of the great inconsistencies I have to confess that I'm experiencing right now is that at the same time I'm here talking to people about the value of quitting, I'm actually working harder now this year than I have worked like in my entire life, it seems. Uh, definitely more so than I have in recent years, in part because I have another book from the same publisher I, you, I did with Race Against Time. I have another book that I'm working on that I have to turn in in December of this uh, year. And is that more conventional? What that? What's that book going to be around? Um, 
I don't, I'm, I'm not sure what the title will be ultimately, but the current title is Why Does Everything Have to Be About Race? And, and so it is a race-related book, and it's a traditional book. It's a, it's a book in paper, a hard copy. Uh, and so uh, that one comes out next year. So, <laughs> is, Are you going to be critical? Are you going to take on critical race theory in that book? Oh, absolutely. 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 That's something I didn't have a chance to get into in my previous book, Race Against Time, because literally the whole development or debate yeah. about, about critical race theory happened after I finished my book. So after I finished writing the book, uh, and so, yes, that's one of the themes I want to take up in the book. Well, Keith, I hope you come back on the show to talk. I, I'd love to talk to you about that one. Sounds interesting. Absolutely. I love being on your show. Appreciate it. Uh, and finally, Keith, uh, congratulations again on quitting. I don't know if I'm congratulating you on actually quitting, but congratulations <laughs> on the new book, Quitting, Why I Left My Job to, to Live a Life of Freedom. Very attractive model from Keith uh, Boykin and his beautiful new apartment in Los Angeles. What else have you been reading these days, Keith, to keep you entertained or amused or educated? Well, you know, I've been trying to do a little bit of reading while I'm still writing, which is a very hard thing to do. Uh, the two most recent books I've read, one was a new book by Carrie Allen Johnson, a novel called Desire Lines, which um, Carrie is a good friend of mine. Uh, and he writes about his experience uh, living in... Um, um, in New York City in the 1970s and early 1980s before the HIV AIDS epidemic mm. uh, and then moving to Africa. But he writes about it from a fictional perspective uh, and tells a fascinating story of what life was like in pre-AIDS America and in immediate post-AIDS, um, post-AIDS epidemic America. So uh, that's fascinating. And, and then I've been reading um, Fire uh, with Dante Stewart's book, I can almost forgot, Shouting in the Fire. Uh, by Dante Stewart, uh, which is a fascinating book as well, which is about his evolution from um, essentially this Southern boy, I think he went to Clemson University, played on the football team. Uh, he felt like his black identity wasn't a value and he sort of erased him, erased that part of himself and even went to this church where he thought that he could sort of change the world and create this sort of, you know, multiracial cultural society and then discovered that he wasn't welcome and had to sort of find his way out of that space. So, um, you know, it's fascinating uh, books to read, uh, one fiction, one nonfiction. And